Thank you so much for this entire week making, uh, making me feel very welcome. As I told you on Sunday morning, I, I lived in East Camden, not far away from you, at the corner of, of Hasty and McRae in, uh, in the old parsonage for nine years. And uh, it, it's been really nice to come back and uh, meet some new friends and see some old friends and, uh, and spend some time with Craig. Craig and I were able to have dinner tonight and speak. And uh, I tell you, Craig wasn't lying when he said a moment ago that I've said good stuff about the church. It's, it's amazing what God has done here at Malvern Hill. Um, I first became familiar with Malvern Hill back in 2002 when, when I moved to East Camden. And uh, even just to walk in the facilities, you, you, you know, even, even that and, and the vibe you get and the conversations you have, you can just feel the difference that God has brought this church um, a long way and God's doing wonderful things here. Craig, I remember the first time we met, w- would have been 11 years ago, right? Would have been like uh, two, 2007. I'm trying to do the math in my head, right? 2007. I remember uh, uh, coming over here, I heard that Malvern Hill had hired a new pastor, and um, you may not remember this, but I uh, drove over one day just on a whim thinking I may catch you, and, and uh, I was able to catch Craig in his office, and he was moving from one place to another. He had somewhere to be, but he, but he gave me just a minute, and I said, hey, I just want to meet you, and I want to let you know that I'm there for you, and, uh, and, and we, we prayed briefly, and then Craig had to go, and I had to go, uh, but it really was the beginning of a, of a, of a great friendship, all the things Craig said. Um, from uh, from uh, loaning books to each other to uh, eating a lot of meals, a lot of lot a lot of meals, a lot of phone conversations, a lot of questions, a lot of opinions, a lot of a lot of what do you think? But uh, Craig is, is one of those guys. Over the years, we've we've just we've just grown closer. And it's it, you know it's funny, Craig, when when you meet someone in ministry, you you just you just never know. Guys move around, ministers move around. You you just you just never know. But over the years, our friendship has persevered. And uh, even though I was the number five choice. To preach revival, I, I still feel loved. Number one in Craig's heart, he said. So it is, uh, it is good to be here, though. So I want to open us in a word of prayer before we look at Matthew chapter 6. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this evening we are thankful that you have told us in your word that you stick closer to us even than a brother. Lord, we know there is that great word, the, the greatest promise you've ever made, the greatest promise you've ever made that you will never leave us that you will never forsake us. And we see that all over the cross, and we see that all over creation. We see that with the giving of the Holy Spirit. We see that with the promise of eternity for those that give their lives to you. Lord, we're just thankful this evening that you will never leave us, that you will, that you will never forsake us. And Lord, as we peer into your word, as we take a quick look in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, I ask that you would illuminate Scripture. Lord, I ask that you would move these people in this room past... Uh, past my feeble words, and, uh, and help them to better understand who you are and what you have in store for this church. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple sermons ago, uh, Monday night, I encourage, uh, Sunday night, I encourage you to, uh, to share your story. And last night, I encouraged you to, uh, to share your resources. And I want to talk a little bit more about, about sharing this evening because you have gifts and talents. And again, you also still have a story to share with those that are nearby. So I, I really want to encourage you along those lines again for the third sermon in a row to consider what it is that you have to share with those that are far away from God. Uh, one of the books that I've read uh, was a collection of, uh, of short stories by uh, a man named Evelyn Watt. 
Waugh. You think it's a woman because it's spelled like Evelyn. You think this is Evelyn Waugh, but it was a British guy. They called him Evelyn, even though it was spelled like Evelyn. Evelyn Waugh wrote a short story called Bella Fleece Gave a Party. Has anybody ever heard of this story, Bella Fleece Gave a Party? You ever heard of the story? Good. I never meet people that have heard this story, so I'm going to share it with you very quickly. Bella Fleece was this old lady, this, this crazy, crazy lady, and uh, in the 19-teens or 1920s, she lived in Ireland, and uh, she lived in this, in this old family manor, this, this great big estate. She lived by herself. Her husband had died some years earlier, and uh, there were no descendants. There, there was nothing like that, but she was getting older and older and older, and she sort of got to be the butt of jokes over time. People began to make fun of, of old crazy Bella Fleece living in that big house by herself. The house began to deteriorate some. It began to look worse and worse, and uh, people didn't know how much longer Bella Fleece had. But uh, Bella Fleece one day began to think about what would happen to her fortune when she died. So she found a very, very distant relative, a young man that was living in London and had him come up and uh, just wanted to show him the place and let him know that he was her next of kin. Well, she was thoroughly disgusted because all he wanted to do, it seemed to her, was, a, was appraise the items in the house, right? She want, he wanted to see what everything was worth and, oh, are these, are these first edition books? So how old is this, uh, is this set of, uh, of, of silver and plates and, and china and stuff like that? All he wanted to do was appraise the items and she was thoroughly disgusted. She decided she would leave him nothing. So Bella Fleece decided to throw a party in this Evelyn Waugh story. And she decided it was going to be the party of the century. It was going to put her back on the map. So she got ready to blow it out. She got ready to blow it out. She had the house touched up. She had painters come in. She had carpenters come in. She began to put together the menus. She ordered a dress. And the day of the party arrived, and uh, she uh, had uh, hairdressers come in and, and, and do her hair. And uh, she, was, she was so excited because everybody was going to come in and see how everything was fantastic, how every, everything was great. But the time came for the party to start. And, uh, and absolutely no one showed up. Absolutely no one showed up. And she thought, well, in this part of Ireland, people begin to do dinner late. They begin to party late. They'll come later. So she had a band. She had the band strike up the tune, and uh, they started playing, but nobody showed up. Nobody showed up. She finally went to the cooks, and she said, serve dinner. It's just me, but serve dinner. So they served dinner. It was exquisite. It was extravagant. They served dinner. She sat down by herself and ate dinner. And finally, late in the evening, there was a knock on the door. And she was overtaken with, with nerves. She was so nervous. So she ran to the top of the stairs, and she dramatically, in her new dress, she stood at the top of the stairs. Nowadays, you know, girls, they throw their hips out for pictures, right? She stood dramatically at the, uh, at, I've, got, I've got a teenage daughter and an eight-year-old. I, I know how it goes. She stood at the top of the stairs, so when the door was open, they would see her dramatically at the top. When they opened the door, it was two women from the community that she had not even invited to the party, and she looked down, and they came in, and she knew that they knew that nobody had come to her party. And she talked to them for just a few minutes, and they said, well, we just wanted to see. We just wanted to check things out, and they, they checked out. They, they went on and left. And when they left and shut the door, Bella Fleece fell over. As a matter of fact, she, she fell over dead. story goes that maybe she died of embarrassment or something like that. A couple of days later, the next of kin came up from London to, to look at things. They had to figure out what to do with the old place. And, uh, and he went into her bedroom, and he, and he found the desk in the corner of her bedroom. And you know what was stacked up on the desk in her bedroom? 
the invitations. She had never mailed the invitations. Poor Bella Fleece thought nobody wanted to come to her party, but she never mailed the invitations. Now, there's a lesson in this for the church. There's this community out there that needs to hear the story of Jesus Christ, right? They need to come to the party, right? They need to come to the party. But the thing is, as I said a couple of days ago, it's, it's up to us, right? God, God's plan B for his kingdom is for you, is, is for the church to get out there and share their story and, and, and bring people in to be introduced to Jesus Christ. I tell you, that's plan A, and there's no plan B, right? There's absolutely no plan B. But we've got to be active in sharing our story and sharing our resources and sharing our gifts with the community. I want to read to you this evening from Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21 and I want to share with you something from the Sermon on the Mount uh, that's very important and and it actually describes the church. It actually describes Malvern Hill. It actually describes you if you're a believer. Now if you're in this room this evening and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, just hang in there with me, all right? I I still think you can learn something. I I still think you'll be glad. But understand that the, the, uh, the onus here, that the burden of this message is placed squarely on the shoulder of believers. It's placed squarely on the shoulders of of Malvern Hill Church. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I've only said Matthew chapter 6 about eight times. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I want to read about four verses to you. This is Jesus speaking to the crowd. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Listen, listen. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See some commandments given in these verses, right? You see something that the church has to do. We've got to do this, and we've got to be this thing. If you're a believer, you see it spelled out in these four verses. He says to the church, he says to believers, you are the salt of the earth, all right? You are the salt of the earth. Now, I have been called many things in life, and you have probably been called many things in life. I got called the fifth choice this evening. Maybe you've been called worse than that, but my guess is you have never, maybe, maybe you've never been called salt, right? I understand it's not a compliment when you talk about somebody and say, ah, they're a little bit salty, right? They're a little bit salty. But in these verses, Jesus tells these followers of him that they are, they are the salt of the earth. When you begin the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, there are these kind of those people statements. There are the Beatitudes. You know the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, all these, these Beatitudes. And it describes believers. It, it says th- this is how believers should look. And it's things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? Blessed are those people. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those meek people. Blessed are the meek, over in verse 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Listen, blessed are the peacemakers. We need that in church, don't we? Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? There are all those, those, those people statements. Blessed are those people. And then, bam, you get to verse 13, and he says this. It's no longer about those people. Listen, Malvern Hill, now it's about you. All right? It's not about those other people that Jesus was talking about. In verse 13, all of a sudden, he's getting personal here. Listen, now he's talking to to you. And he says this, you are the salt of the earth. That's what you are. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are the salt of the earth. Now I want to do this very quickly because if you've been in church for a while, you possibly heard somebody preach these verses. But let let me share a few things with you in in regards to salt. When you say, "What, what does it mean that I'm supposed to be salty? Salt preserves, right? Salt is something that preserves. And the idea, the symbolism is we live in this great big world that is, that is sort of rotting away. We live, in this, we live in this rotten, dark world. And if we are salt, we are helping to preserve the world, right? We, we, are, we are spiritual salt. I heard this story about David Livingston. You know, the famous missionary David Livingston, he goes to Africa, and he falls in love with Africa. He falls in love with the African people, and all he wants to do is bring the gospel to Africa. David Livingston dies in Africa, and uh, when he dies, they, they, uh, they honor his last will and testament. They, they cut his heart out, and they bury his heart in Africa, right? Symbolic. His heart was with the African people. They bury his heart in Africa, but they take his body back to England to be buried. And you know what they did to get him back to England on that old boat so long ago? They put him in this big vat of salt, right? Sort of preserved the body, right? They put him in this big bag of salt, this big vat of salt. It, it preserves the body. And spiritually speaking, this is what we're doing. If, if we are spiritual salt, we are, we are bringing preservatives to this great big world that's rotting away. Salt flavors things, doesn't it? You had salted ham lately? Hey, my dad is a, uh, is a hardware salesman. Dad's in his 70s now. He's still selling hardware. My entire life, he has been a hardware salesman, a, a rep for a wholesale distributor. Really hard, not, not computer hardware. I mean, he sells hammers and nails and screwdrivers and things like that. And my dad has spent his whole life hanging out in old hardware stores, right? And you know who hangs out in old hardware stores? Well, men like my dad. Hangs out in these old hardware stores. And I had two brothers. There were three of us. My poor mom had four brothers, and she had three sons. And I don't, I don't, that was a curse or something. Something she did. God was probably cursing her with all these sons. My dad would do, by the way, she's here. She's on this second row right here. My dad would do, sometimes dad would bring stuff from the old hardware store home. Dad, Mom, you remember dad brought a big uh, salted country ham home from the hardware store? And dad had this great idea. And the boys, we thought it was great. My older brother's here as well on the second row. My other brother's in Arkansas. Dad had this great idea. Dad took a hook and, and, he, and he screwed it up into the, um, the ceiling of the kitchen And dad loved hardware stores so much, he decided he would make the kitchen like a hardware store. So he hung that salted ham up in the uh, the corner of the kitchen in our house. And my brothers and I, we thought that was fabulous. We thought that was absolutely fabulous. But uh, Virginia Diane Reynolds Richardson, my mother, 
She did not think that a ham hanging in the corner of the kitchen was a fabulous idea, right? It just did not suit. Now, to make a long story short, the next morning the ham was gone, right? It was gone, and, and, and the ceiling was patched. We were no longer an old hardware store. But you know what was not gone? We would still eat that ham for a long time. We ate, we ate that salted ham, and it brought flavor and I think when Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, we're, we're, bringing, we're bringing something to this old world. Salt is something that is noticeable, right? Salt is something that is noticeable. You know what Eugene Peterson said about believers? He said that Christians are the salt seasoning that brings out God's flavors to the world. Let me say that again. He says, Christians, we, we, are, we are salt seasoning that brings out God's flavors to the world. Jesus was talking to, uh, Jesus was talking to, um, to his disciples in these verses. He was talking to people. He was getting ready to send out into the world. And he says to them, listen, you, you've got to be the salt of the world. You, you, you've got to bring preservatives to this old rotting world. Bring, bring the flavor of God to this world, right? So he's giving instruction to his disciples, and tonight I'm giving all of us the same instruction as well. If you claim to be a believer, you are the salt of the earth. It's too bad that throughout history people have not always felt this way about Christians. Let me read a few quotes to you very quickly. Um, this came out of a play by Enric uh, Ibsen, and uh, he, he was putting words in the mouth of the Roman emperor Julian. And again, these, these are made-up words, but in his play, this is what Julian said about those Christians back in the Roman Empire. He says, Have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted, they brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The, sh the sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they do not desire it. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. That is not a pretty picture of Christianity, is it? Not a pretty picture of Christianity. This is what one guy said in one of his poems about Jesus Christ a long time ago. Talking about Jesus, he says, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. Is that how you describe Jesus? Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. Doesn't sound like the salt of the earth, does it? Maybe there was this time when people believed all this stuff of Christians. Maybe those times are still here with us. This is what Oliver Wendell Holmes said about Christians. He says, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen, right, certain preachers, if certain clergymen I knew had not acted and looked so much like undertakers. You know, Christians that look like they take a bath in starch, they're always upset about something, they're always protesting something. This is what a lot of people think of Christians is we are more defined by the things we're against. You say, what do you think of Southern Baptists? They'll say, well, Southern Baptists are anti this and anti that and anti that. Listen, I'm glad to be Southern Baptists, but we have worked ourselves into this reputation where we are not so much the salt of the earth as we are people that are always protesting something, right? We are always protesting. We're always pushing the brake instead of the gas, right? We're always pushing the brake instead of the gas. When you read the New Testament, he says, hey, push the gas pedal. Talk to people about the 
the promises of God. Be the salt of the earth. I mean, I realize there are times we need to stand up. Days like today when we go to the polls, there are days we need to stand up. We need to say, we're not going to stand for this. Or we can do better than this. But I believe when you look at the New Testament, the image that is portrayed of how Christians should act is that we are people pushing the gas pedal for the gospel of Jesus Christ. These verses, or these, these quotes I just read a moment ago, they do not paint a picture of, uh, of Christians being the salt of the earth. So when I was in high school, uh, we were members of a church over in Sumter, and there was this guy, he was a coach at the local high school, and uh, he taught um, boys that were juniors and seniors in high school. The junior and senior boys, they all loved him. Good guy, good guy, still today, great guy. He's still involved with kids. And we were able to be in his Sunday school class, and uh, it was this good group of guys, I don't know, 12 or 15 guys about my age, and he's the kind of guy guy opened his house up. You could drop by his house on a Tuesday night and knock on the door, and he'd come in. There'd be food. You could watch your braids play with him. Just a real good guy. But I remember him telling me one time, he said, you know, Condi, the school that I teach in, there, there is so much nonsense. There, there's, there's so much naughtiness. There are so, many, there are so many sort of bad apples. He said, I would love to take my little Sunday school class of, of you boys. I would love to take this group of Christian boys and, uh, and transplant you. You all go to different schools. I'd love to transplant you into my school and my classes and, uh, and let this group of Christians make a difference among those other boys that I see in my school. And it's the first time I began to really think about this concept of, of being, being the salt of the earth, of, uh, of making a difference. Our church has, has much to give away to the world. If you don't know this, you need to think about this. Our Christian churches, we have much to export to the world. We, we've got a lot. I'm, I'm trying to talk to a non-believer in my neighborhood about what marriage should look like. It's hard because this couple is not a Christian couple, but we have so much to talk to the world about when it comes to, uh, to marriage and divorce, when it comes to intimacy, when it comes to sexuality, when, when it comes to how we handle our finances. Listen, according to God's Word, we, we have so much to share with the world um, about, uh, about, about forgiveness, about loving people, about showing grace, about not holding a grudge. We have, listen, we have so much to share with the world. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says that we are the salt of the earth. Whether you know it or not, Jesus wasn't saying, I hope you will be this. He, he was saying, you're, you're, you're it. That's, that's you. You are the salt of the earth, and you are impacting people around you in, in some way. I just hope it's the right way. Let me get rolling with this. He says something else. He says, we are the salt of the earth, but he says this as well in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. I want to read something to you from John chapter 8. It's just one verse. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, verse 12, if you want to turn there, but it'll be on the screen behind me. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, listen, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right, this is a quote from Jesus. You ready? Jesus said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
of life. It's funny because in verse 14 of chapter 5 that I read to you just a moment ago, Jesus says, who's the light of the world? He says, he says you're the light of the world, right? So in chapter 5, you're the light of the world. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says, he's the light of the world. So you've got to figure this out. You've, you've got to think about what, so who, who is it? Who is it? I guess it's all the above. What you have to understand is over in uh, John chapter 8, Jesus was doing something. It, it was around a, a festival time. There was this uh, high, high celebration time of the year called the illumination of the temple. And when the illumination of the temple happened on the calendar year in the ancient Jewish world, they would build these, these, these huge torches around the, uh, around the temple. Some of them were as high as the walls of the temple. They would build these, these huge, I don't know, like, like candelabras, these, these huge torches, and, and they would put these bowls on top, and they would have an immense amount of fuel in those bowls. And at this time of festival, um, a young priest would, would climb up the, those huge, huge tall towers and, and and would light the bowl full of fuel and at the time when they were celebrating the illumination of the temple the history books Josephus would say this Josephus said that the entire city of Jerusalem was lit up they, they would light these these huge torches these huge candelabras around the temple they would light them and and the entire city the entire city looked like it was on fire. It was all aflame. It, it was like it was daytime in the middle of the night. There's a name, the illumination of the temple. And the priests would come down. The priests would play instruments. They would sing songs. They would dance all night. And they would do it until the morning. And they were celebrating the illumination of the temple. Now listen to this. With that in the background... With all of Jerusalem, with all of the temple being lit up like nothing you have ever seen in your life, in John chapter 8, Jesus stands up and Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. They'd seen all that stuff. They'd seen Jerusalem lit up. They'd seen the temple lit up. And with all that in the background, Jesus says, oh yeah, oh yeah. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You know what he was saying? He was saying, in comparison, what you saw last night at the illumination of the temple, it, it pales. It pales in comparison to the light of Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us this. He says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Some of you around here in 1989 when Hugo came through, some of you remember that? I remember that. I wasn't so far away. I lived in a house with mom and dad. I was in high school then, I believe. Yeah, I was in high school back then. And uh, Hurricane Hugo was coming through, and uh, we, we knew that it was coming through. And I remember that night, mom and dad came, and uh, they got my, my, my brother, because one of us would have been off at college. David would have been off at college. Got, got Wyman and me and said, y'all need to come in the hallway. And we shut all the doors in the hallway. And Hurricane Hugo came through, and I remember thinking it, it sounded like a freight train was, was running through my house. Some of you remember this? It sounded like a freight train was running through the house. And uh, we got through it. The house wasn't really damaged, but a lot of houses around us were damaged. Woke up the next morning and there was there was just there was there was a lot of destruction in the community. And for the next, I don't know, must have been a week or 10 days, we, we actually didn't have power where we lived. 
Long time, many, many days, we didn't have power where we lived. And I remember a few things. I remember eating very well because we had to clean the uh, freezer out, right? There's all this meat in the freezer. There was this old lady that lived next door. She lived by herself, and uh, she had all kind of meat in this big freezer, steaks and, and lamb and stuff like that. And she would bring them over to my dad and say, well, cook all this meat. It's going to go bad. So dad would turn the grill on. I just remember we ate like crazy. That was one of the, the nice side effects of Hurricane Hugo was all the food. It was almost worth it to get to eat all that food. And the other thing I remember was the darkness. Is during the day, we'd work, we'd work in people's yards. We'd help out our neighbors. It was nothing. You couldn't drive. The National Guard wouldn't let you drive around. Couldn't really go anywhere. So we'd work, work, work. And uh, then about, I don't know, 7.30 or 8, maybe 8.30, somewhere in there, it would get pitch black dark, and we didn't have power. There's no power. And I, I will never forget the darkness so we'd go in, there'd be a few candles that were lit, and uh, somewhere about 8.30 or so, we'd, we'd all just go to sleep. I was a teenage boy, it'd been a long time since I'd been asleep at, at that time, but I would go to sleep in the pitch black, and then somewhere, you know, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, we'd all get up and we'd do our thing. That's what people were doing, right? In, in, in a land with no electricity, I will, I will never forget the darkness Jesus tells these people, these followers, he says, you are the light of the world. You know people that go through something and they say something like this. Maybe they go through a death in the family. They go through a tragedy and they say, boy, I never would have made it if not for my church family. Hey, raise your hand if you've ever said that. Some of you said, a lot of you have said that. Yeah, wow, I'm surprised. I've said that before too. I never would have made it if not for my church family. I think about that when I think about the idea of we live in this dark world, right? We, we live, listen, we live in a dark, cruel world, and you're seeing it on TV. You're seeing it on the political scene. Don't we live in, in supercharged-up times? Do you agree with that? I, th I think we live in, in, these, in these angry times, and people on TV, they're angry, and, and politicians are angry. We're not collegial. Democrats and Republicans, they can't work together. They just can't do it. They, they can't work together. We live in these dark times. We live in these dark times. And Jesus tells us in verse 14 that we are to be the light of the world. Jesus was getting ready to send out his disciples. At the end of the Gospels, he would send his disciples out. And, and they, they, would just, they would just turn the world upside down. They would travel. They would heal people. They would bring the gospel. They would bring hope to people. Listen, listen. they were bringing the light to people that were living in darkness. I'll give you a book recommendation. David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart wrote a book called Atheist Delusions. And it was a response to a guy who wrote a book about Christian delusions. And in Atheist Delusions, David Bentley Hart, he, he sought to combat the idea that the church was backwards and, uh, and mean and, uh, and sort of flat earth people. I hope I'm not offending any flat earth people in this room. But he, he sought to kind of to combat the idea that, uh, that Christians just aren't kind or compassionate or thinking people. And in that book, he sort of went through history and, and, and he talked about things that the church did. We've got this idea that in, in the medieval period or in the, in the dark ages, that the church was against people, that the church didn't want to do anything. And uh, what Hart does is he begins to talk about what God's church was doing in, the, in those dark, dark times. He talked about the hospital that were set up so that le people with leprosy 
could be treated. Incredible stories he told. These, these hosp- when, nobody else, when nobody else would treat people that were dealing with leprosy, Christians were putting together um, hospitals for lepers, hospitals for people that were very sick and very old. It, 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 was, it was nuns and priests. It, it was a church that was seeking to reach these people that were, uh, that were dying, that were very, very sick. When the plague ripped through Europe, Christians were on the front line, right? The church was on the front line, sort of being a a candle, a light in a world that was full of darkness. You know, in the ancient world, particularly around the times of Christ, and then the centuries after that, if if, if you had a baby and and you didn't want that baby, it, it was perfectly acceptable. It was okay. It was perfectly acceptable for you to take that baby and just put that baby on the side of the hill. That, that was okay. You could just give that baby up. And, uh, and the elements would, would take the life of the baby. But that's just what they were doing, right? That's just what they would do. You know what these crazy Christians were doing? They were going to the hill and gathering up the babies and, and raising them like they were their own. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? They were going against, these ancient Christians were going against the norm, and it boggled the mind of these people in this ancient world. Why do Christians want these babies? Nobody else wants them. Nobody else wants them. This is what God calls us to do. These Christians in the ancient world, they were founding libraries and universities. They were historians. They they, they were doing all this stuff. But they were ministering to people that were, that were living in darkness. Malvern Hill, God calls you to do the same thing. He calls you to be the light of the world. Shine the light of Jesus. In this world that, that, is, that is so dark, in my experience, is, is so angry, is so far removed from God's world. He says, not that we should hate the world, but we should shine the light of Jesus in this world. Now, he gives a commandment. He sort of wraps up with a commandment. And, and this, this commandment, it goes to mission and it goes to identity. We've been talking about identity, right? We, we are salt and we are light. But these final few verses, they, they, they go to identity and, and they go to, to, uh, to mission. Listen to this, last few verses. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Let your light shine before others. This is the commandment. This is what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to let our light shine before others. The verses at the beginning, he says this, we we are the salt of the earth. And then he says something interesting. He says, you know, a salt that loses its saltiness is really not good for anything except to sort of just be thrown out in the the street. This is a little bit of a sad verse. I wonder wonder if it describes Christians that that have rendered themselves useless. If we're not salty, this is how it sounds to me. If we're not the salt of the earth, if we have lost our saltiness, the ability to to preserve this decaying world, the ability to to bring flavor, the the flavor of Christ into this bland world, if we've lost our ability to do that, it sounds like he's saying, well, you're at that point just fit to just sort of be thrown out. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? 
The idea that as a church, as Christians, we could be so useless that Christ says, well, I've, just got, I've just got nothing for you. Isn't that sad? These verses, a salt that loses its saltiness is no longer good for anything. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Isn't that cool? You know, Ronald Reagan brought that into a speech, didn't he? John F. Kennedy did it as, as well, talked about America. They said, we, we are a city on a hill. And the idea is that the rest of the world would look up to America. We would be a beacon of hope to the world. And that's, that's what we should, should want to be. These presidents have used this. They sort of co-opted this verse and says this, Neither do people light a lamp and, and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. So this light, this light of the gospel we've got, you, you, don't, you don't cover it up. There's the old kid's song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know the part? Hide it under a bushel. No! Hide it under a bushel. No, we don't hide it under a bushel, right? We, we let that light shine. We are the light of the world as Jesus was the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others. He said this as well. He says, he says, instead of hiding this light, he says, put it on a stand in the house. Put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Listen, let your light shine. Let your light shine. This is so cool. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that he is the light of the world. He tells us that, that we are the light of the world. It reminds me of that old sermon I read. This sermon was, was over 100 years old. I, I read it. There was, there was this illustration that talked about this, this idea of being the light of the world. It says this. It says, when Jesus came born of the Virgin Mary to be with us in this world, Jesus came, and he was like the sun, all right? I, I know S-O-N, but also in this story, he was the S-U-N, right? Jesus came, and, and he was like the sun, and, and he was this bright light, right? He illuminated everything. He brought clarity. He showed us where to go, right? He, he, um, um, he, he uncovered things that were dark that might trip us up. So Jesus came. He was like the S-U-N sun, and he, he shined so brightly when he was on the cross, right? Right? He shined so brightly when he was on the cross and then in that tomb. And then three days later, when he, when he came out of the tomb, he was, he was shining so brightly. He's the light of the world. And this old preacher said this. He said, but you know, Jesus ascended to be with the Father. And, uh, and what happened? He said, well, what happened was as the sun goes down, the, the, the moon, just stick with me. He says, as the sun goes down, the moon comes up. And the moon brings light too, right? You know this? The moon, when you've got a night and that full moon is up there, it sort of brings light. But the moon doesn't bring light on its own. You know where the moon's light comes from? It's a reflection of the sun, right? And he said, this is like the church. He said, the church is like the moon. If, if Christ is the sun, then the church is like the moon. And what we do is, is we don't have light of our own. We, listen, we are reflecting the light of Jesus, Right? We are reflecting the light of Jesus. And that's what Malvern Hill is, is supposed to be doing. You are supposed to be reflecting the light of Jesus. So the more Jesus we soak up, stick with me, the more Jesus we soak up, the more Jesus we reflect into this dark, dark world. So don't let anything come between you and Jesus. A bad habit, an addiction, slackness, 
inability to show up for worship, an unwillingness to read His Word, an unwillingness to pray. Don't let anything come between you and Jesus because we are reflecting the light of Jesus. We are reflecting the light of Jesus. He says over in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, we are children of light. Talking about believers, talking about Christians. He says that we are children of light. Over in Philippians, he says this, says that we are, listen to this, I love this. Over in Philippians chapter 2, he says that Christians are to shine like stars in the universe. Isn't that cool? That's us. We are to shine like stars in the universe. We are the light of the world. We are reflecting the light of Jesus in a dark, dark world. And instead of beating this world up, instead of hating this world, instead of always commiserating about how bad things are, what if we were shining the light of Jesus in this dark, dark world? Last verse says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So why do we shine our light? So we can look good, right? So people can see how great we are, right? We can show our good deeds? Not exactly. It says that, but there are a couple of verses, a couple of words after that. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we don't shine our light to look good. We shine our light so that God may be glorified. When we act as the light of the world, we are pointing people towards God. And Malvern Hill must, must be that place. Malvern Hill must be that place. I talk to my church all the time about this. We're, we're an old church. We're in downtown Fountain Inn. And I tell this church all the time, so we have got to be the light of Jesus. Malvern Hill must be the light of the world right where you are. So how will you shine your light? How will you shine your light this week? Is it with a good attitude at, at, at work to, to maybe show people what Jesus has done in your life? Is, is it through sharing your story? Is it through being generous? Is it through sharing your resources? Is it through redoubling your commitment to God? I know it's a thing we don't like to talk about, but how do you shine your light in this dark, dark universe? Let me tell you a story. Last story. I promise. Last story. Craig's children, I'm sorry. This is the last story I have to share. I was talking to, uh, to this guy. We, we live in one of these cookie-cutter neighborhoods up in the uh, Fountain Inn area in the bottom of Greenville. And um, about, a, about 100 houses. There are 97 houses in my neighborhood. And we've got one of those neighborhood pools. When we pay the HOA fees, that, that's one of the curses that the devil brought into the universe is um, homeowners associations. Can I get an amen? We're part of an HOA and we pay these fees. Part of the fees is we get to use a swimming pool, right? So it's, it's worth it in that sense. But they had one of these socials. Come and meet your neighbors. And, and I decided I was going to do it. It was late in the day on a Sunday. And so we went to the pool. And we were sort of standing around talking to people. And this guy walked over beside the pool to talk to me. And he's got a, uh, he's got a beer in his hand. And we just start talking, right? We're, we're just talking, talking, talking. And he tells a few dirty jokes. And he cusses a little bit. And he's drinking beer, and he drinks one, and he gets another one, and he gets another one. He's just drinking, talking, and uh, I'm, I'm try, trying to be as friendly to this guy as I can. 
And finally, he asked, Craig, you know the dreaded question. He asked a dreaded question. David, you know the dreaded question. He asked a dreaded question. He said, what do you do for a living? This is always a tense moment for preachers, all right? Always a tense moment for preachers. This poor guy, I felt sorry for him. He was cussing up a storm. He's telling dirty jokes. He's drinking beer. He says, what do you do for a living? And I, I was going to tell him I was a truck driver or something, right? I was, I, was trying to, I was trying to let him down. And I said, well, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Church. And he turned about, <laughs> about 50 shades of crimson, <laughs> about 50 shades of red. He turned, he turned every shade of red in the book. And, and then I remembered something. I remembered that we had a little um, social at the church. And uh, it was summertime, and, and we, we were winding. We weren't doing a whole lot on Sunday evenings at the church. And, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just now getting down to it with this guy, right? I mean, we, we just got real, <laughs> right? We just got real with each other. And I said, well, I got to go. I got something at the church. And so I went to the church. And, uh, again, it was summertime. You could tell people didn't want to be there. It was a little ice cream social. We're standing around eating ice cream. The ice cream wasn't so good. The conversation was even worse. That was a good conversation by the pool. That was an exciting conversation. We're talking about nothing. And uh, I, I, just, I want to tell you what I thought standing there in the fellowship hall eating churned ice cream and sort of chatting with a, with a few dozen people that chose to show up on a beautiful summer Sunday evening. I sat there thinking or stood there thinking, would my time have been better spent by the pool talking to that man than you know, then, then sort of just with a bunch of people that, that look just like me and talk just like me and believe just like I just I just kept thinking. I, I thought, you know, Pastor Condi, your time might have been better spent standing around the pool with that guy, getting to know him a little bit and, and shining the light of Jesus. Now, the moral of the story is not to blow off church on Sunday night, all right? That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is not to skip church. The moral of the story is God has called us to be salt and, and light in this world that is, that is rotting away, in this world that is, is very, very dark. And we have to do that with intentionality. Before I pray, I'm going to leave you with this question. How is it that you will shine the light, that you, you will reflect the light of Jesus in this world? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that you were missional. You were so missional that you sent your son Jesus to be with us, lived a sinless life, who ministered, who healed people, who walked around and, and did the work of a missionary in a relatively small part of the world. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus came to be the light of the world. And then, and then he sort of passed that torch. He told us that we are to be the light of the world. Lord, my closing prayer this evening is as we wrap up the short week of revival, I ask that you would introduce new and incredible ways that Malvern Hill can be light in this world, in this part of East Camden. Lord, open doors, open doors. Give these people opportunities to share their story. Give them wisdom to see it. Give them the courage to do it when those doors are open. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
I've asked you to pray every night. These musicians are going to lead us in singing. We'll just sing a song together. Just be here a few minutes. It's 734 right now. We're almost done. I want to invite you to respond, uh, maybe standing where you are. Maybe you want to turn around and, and kneel at, uh, at the pew where you are. You might want to come and, and kneel at these steps. So you might want to walk down and talk to your pastor, Craig, who will be standing in front of you. And I want you to pray for somebody that desperately needs the light of Jesus in their life. Ask God how he will open a door for you to share with them, to be salt and light in their life. I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Oh.